Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Adaptable CEO with Anya and myself, Tiffany. Today, we are thrilled to welcome our guest, Claire Ghibellini. Claire is a passionate advocate for the inclusion of people with disability in employment and self-employment. Claire has roles as the co-chair of the Oversight Council for the Australian Federal Government's National Autism Strategy, member of the National Disability Insurance Agency's Equity and Inclusion Reference Group, and the Deputy Chair for the WA Ministerial Advisory Council on Disability. Claire's work focuses on improving economic opportunities for people with disabilities and championing human rights both domestically and also internationally. Claire, welcome to the Adaptable CEO and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's nice to see you both. It's been more than 12 months, I think now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think so. We first met back in, I think, the end of 2021 or 2022. These years have just blurred. Yeah, yeah, at the Disability Strategy Forum, yeah. Yeah, in Canberra. So it's so good to have you here. I loved hearing your insights on the panel there. And I'm just so excited to hear your insights with us today. And I'm hoping that we can talk about a few things that you haven't spoken about before, which will probably be a little bit hard, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it's getting me to stop talking. That's usually the issue. (laughs) As you know, trying to host me on a panel, I went over time. (laughs) Uh, I think we could have spoken for the entire day and we probably can speak the entire day now. But to kick us off, we actually have a question that we want to ask every single guest that comes on our podcast, and we're hoping it's a little bit different. But what we want to know is what are the three things that you think about the most? Just because we have a belief that what we think about reflects in our life in some way, and it probably sets our future direction as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Oh, what three things am I thinking about now? Well, I probably should be, you know, the do the right thing and say the national autism strategy. <laughs> but um, but luckily enough, we've got a really good secretariat, so I do get to switch my brain off from that. Um, I guess the, you know, the three big things I'm thinking about right now is really trying to change the way that we as a community have been working. So I spoke to a bunch of younger people about employment earlier this week and I was sort of reflecting on all of the advocating and the pushing that we do. It's always focused on us as people with disability trying to, you know, make ourselves more adaptable and make ourselves, you know, more employable and those sorts of things. But I think it's really beyond time that we flip the lid on that and uh, we start looking at what do we need to do to support the employers to be more open? What do we need to do to make seats on a board available to us and not just for ticking a box in a diversity uh, scan kind of way, but to be really meaningfully sought out and contributing. So that's a big thing now, just trying to wrap my head around that. Got some work coming up around employment and micro business. So you know, just really thinking about the things that I've worked with around microenterprise around in the past and, you know, what what did we learn from that and what did we need to change and how do we make that more accessible? And particularly for microenterprises here in WA, we've got opportunity to find seed funding for people when they start their own business, but that's not national. So how do you make that available? How do you get governments to invest in people starting their own small business? I think it's a massively valuable uh, skill set you learn when you run your own business, but traditionally it's not necessarily something that funders or you know um, have really thought about putting a lot of money into because they don't necessarily see the value for our community. Um, and to be honest, the other one that I've been really thinking about um, this week is uh, I'm starting to do work in uh, what's called the disability inclusive disaster risk reduction space and emergency management space. And some friends and I are banding together and starting a new organisation supporting emergency services workers and volunteers with disability. And so we'll be launching that this year. And that's taking up quite a bit of my time this week as well. I love that. There's so much going on. There's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> there always is. <laughs> Very busy, I'd imagine. Can you describe what your early years were like in terms of your education or jobs you had? Yeah. Oh, gosh. So I, um, look, some people see it as a privilege. Some people see it as a problem. But I, I grew up Air Force. So my dad was um, a serving member of the Royal Australian Air Force. And we shifted around quite a lot. And I think I went to about 14 different schools by the time I hit year nine, which, you know, that's pretty significant. Uh, was it easy? No. 
Uh, did it impact my education? Yes, absolutely, because, you know, every state and territory has different curriculums and education standards and even ages for kids to be in certain years. So I kind of went up and down a few times. But it also gave me a lot of skills that I really value today, um, you know, around adaptability and being able to have conversations with people you don't really necessarily know and things like that. So um, and I got to do some cool things that other people might not have. And and I actually think too that, that it influenced my love of travel. So yes, life was interesting growing up. A lot of the time it was me, my mum, my dad, my sister and the family dog and moving to some strange place. But education, I love to learn. I'm a very curious person, but I haven't necessarily had the great educational outcomes that I might have had if I had stayed in one spot for a really long time so and I've always known that I've been different I've always I didn't necessarily have the language to call it a disability all those years ago but uh, I've known that it's I was always different and so I think that I possibly didn't get the support that I needed in that way because when you shift every you know I think the shortest I ever lived somewhere was five months and so when you move that much it's a little bit challenged to get picked up by the system so yeah but I don't I don't hold that in a negative light, I think it's outweighed by the great experiences I've had. You know, it's so interesting to reflect on your experiences, especially those early years of education in yeah. that way. Like I went to three different primary schools and that was a lot of change for me, but nowhere near as much of, you know, five months in one place. Yeah. Then I think I reflect on my career now where I do so many different things at once. And I think, okay, that's actually gave me those skills from those really early years. And then you know, from the outside looking into the work that you do now and that rapid change then, it probably really prepared you well for what you do now. Yeah, I do. I think it does serve me quite well now, that adaptability and that flexibility. Like I find, and other people have said this to me, that, you know, I'm quite good at finding common denominators between myself and other people so that we can have conversations. And I think that comes from fitting in in the schoolyard and having to navigate new teachers and new situations and new school rules and new this, that and the other. So, yeah, I think it serves me well. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So what was your first job and what was your career progression like from there? Oh, <laughs> I had this conversation with one of my children and they said to me that my career is not necessarily a pathway. It's more like a plate of spaghetti, <laughs> which I really like. And now I use that. Um, my first job was at Target. By this stage, we were living here in Perth and mum was on her own and you know, single parenthood. So I, we contributed and I went and got a job at, as soon as I was able. And I got a job at Target. And uh, I think I started out working in like the ladies wear section or something like that. Didn't have the attention span for the till. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I was, so I worked at Target for a really, really long time. Then I uh, kind of got a bit sick of that. And I got a retail traineeship for a an organization over here that um, sold Manchester so all the bedding and a bit like a bed bath and table now but it was a small WA business well small they had about 10 shops but um, and I did a retail traineeship and I don't actually know why um, <laughs> because I wasn't retail was not my life goal um, I actually wanted to be a journalist and I think it wasn't necessarily much so much about the writing. It was about the stories. I love stories um, and I love sharing stories and things like that. So, um, but life as usual always has other plans. And so I didn't do so well in as well as I wanted when I finished year 12. And so I ended up going back to night school and, and doing my, um, what's called TE back then or ATAR now. Did that again and got into to university. And again, I don't know that I was 100% sure about what I really wanted to do with that. Uh, I got in to do my degree in human biology just because I was good at it at school and curious about it, but I wasn't super sure what I wanted to do. And that's where I think I first saw the biggest impact for education was uh, I'm really not great with maths. I really struggle with maths. I, I don't, I haven't got a diagnosis with dyscalculia, but I really struggle with maths and I couldn't keep up with the chemistry and the statistics of my human biology degree. So I switched out and I started doing anthropology and international relations and I just loved it. Again, didn't know what I wanted to do with it, <laughs> but I loved it. And then uh, I met my ex-husband and I uh, was shortly pregnant not that long afterwards. So there goes my education. But yeah, so and then I so I fell back on what I um that whole time I, I kept in re going in retail. And again, it was just money. It wasn't something that I particularly loved, but it was a skill set that I had until I also became a single mum 
with a one-year-old and a three-year-old and thought these hours are not for me. You know, retail's long, it's exhausting, and I think um, being autistic, all that peopling was taking its toll. And uh, one day I saw an ad in the paper for an organisation that's now called the Ability Centre in WA and they were looking for essentially support workers and I kind of didn't even think about it. I didn't think about what that work might mean. I didn't think about, you know, could I do it? I thought all I saw was the hours and I thought, this is for me. It's around the corner from home, good hours. I can be the mum that I want to be. And that was 20 years ago and I've stayed in the sector ever since. <laughs> I just, I just mm-hmm. loved it. I just, um, and I've worked from support worker level to staff trainer, to manager, to running projects, to, you know, senior exec. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a wild ride, but it's all within disability. That's mm-hmm. incredible. And you said you're not much of a people person, but I think all of those jobs you sort of outlined yeah a lot of peopling as you said like my first job actually was target in ladies wear as well there you go so you got (laughs) the scars too too. (laughs) and you like I think I enjoyed the customer service aspect of it but it's very tiring it's very exhausting and being on your feet all day and then you'd get weird questions and lots of different encounters with different sorts of people but it does sort of give you lots of good life skills I think yeah yeah still not a fan of getting yelled at by our older ladies (laughs) they'd come in and their size wasn't available I don't know I bought this last year why aren't they still here look lady I'm not in control of that stuff I'm a 14 year old hangers I know, right? Yeah, you're not saving lives here, but we'll help you out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think you're you're right, though, because if I think about the jobs that I've done, I mean, you know, the support worker type role, you know, my role was to build bridges about getting people, you know, opportunities and things like that. And, you know, I look at the system then and the system now, and, you know, we did a lot of day program stuff. So it wasn't really building good lives for the people that I was supporting, but you don't know what you don't know, right? I, I was fresh out of, you know, if I look back at it now and, but again, it was the way things were done then, but it, you know, it did give me the ability to, I think, be pretty decent at that stakeholder engagement and you know having collaborative conversations with people so yeah you're right that probably shaped me quite a bit too yeah (laughs) definitely how you can do anything (laughs) I think so we've survived that the world is our oyster yeah Um, so when did you first identify as having a disability yeah I've been thinking about this since you brought it up and I think I've all, I've, you know, I've always known, mm. right? I've always known that my brain worked a little bit differently or I didn't quite fit in or I didn't quite do things the same way that everybody else did. Did I have a word for it? No. So whether or not your class that is identifying, I don't know. I do. So yeah, I've always known, but I haven't always been out to say it as well, you know, and, and I don't think we need to delve into how difficult diagnostic processes are and, you know, all those barriers, that's probably a whole nother episode. But the way I work is that I, I didn't feel confident saying it to the outside world until I had the piece of paper that somebody who'd gone to uni told me that I had it and I had that piece of paper, if that makes sense. So internally, my whole life, externally, it's probably only been I think since 2020 where I've sort of been out and proud to the world about it yeah yeah that's really interesting that you've always known and always felt it yeah and that diagnosis was kind of that external validation or that permission to tell everyone else do you think that having that diagnosis helped like navigate things better or do you think having that knowing you were always able to navigate things in a easier way yeah look this comes up a lot when people sort of say to me should I tell my child or should I not I think there's elements of it that have made it easier so since I've felt comfortable saying it to the world along with that comes more comfort in asking for the accommodations that I might need it's changed the way that I talk to myself but you know, for every benefit, there is things like ableism that as soon as you put the label on it, people 
sort of considered to be less. There's no secret about that. But for the whole, it's been pretty good. The big things now are giving myself permission if I'm not coping with something to do something about that rather than muddling through because you don't want to look different to everybody else and setting myself up also for things that I can and can't do. So if I've got that greater awareness now. And, you know, we have a bit of a joke in this house. So just for a bit of background, I have three children, one's 25, one's 24 and one's 10. They're all neurodivergent and myself. So we have a bit of a uh, joke in uh, our house that, you know, we'd have our own pride parade if we could, because we've, and maybe that comes from the fact that I was working in the sector as we became aware of it in my children and then subsequently me, but I never wanted to frame it as something was wrong with the kids. I always wanted to frame it as we're a little different, but we can do things differently and we, but we can still do them, you know, those sorts of things. So yeah, I think I probably veered away from your question a little bit there, but yeah, I often wonder though, if I chose to work outside of the disability sector, what that might look like, because I know the more work I'm doing with emergency services, it kind of feels like I've gone right back to the beginning with attitudes and ideas. So, and starting that process all over again. So but yeah, I might have veered off your question. Sorry. No, not at all. That's great insight. And yeah, like what sort of stories have you told yourself about your disability and how have you worked to rewire and reframe those perhaps negative stories that I think we all have that are chronically ill or disabled? And we do, we uh, look, and it's not just about being disabled, you know, as, as women, we get that whole stories about body image and we get hair color. I mean, you know, every time I go to a new hairdresser, you can see their fingers twitch because they want to dye my hair, but I like my gray. I earned them. <laughs> I earned my sparkles. Uh, so I'm not afraid to keep them out there to the world, but that's, I'm digressing. Um, I, I used to tell myself really awful stories, awful stories that I was never good enough, that I was... And I really don't like using these words because I, you know, they're a little bit ableist, but I'll, for the purpose of the story, just bear with me. You know, I used to tell myself I was stupid. I used to use the R word against myself. I used to say that I wasn't good enough, that nobody would want to be around me, that nobody, you know, gave a, a damn whether I lived and breathed or didn't. That was all that internalized um, awfulness because I struggled to fit in. It might not have been as obvious to the outside world because, you know, the people I was trying to fit in with, I might have only been there six months and then I was off, but I knew, right? Or I could mask it for that short space of time and then we moved. So, yeah, and, and then when I became a single mum again, it was like because I was unlovable, because I, you know, I couldn't manage relationships because, 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 because. And it's taken years and years and years to un undo that and to... Uh, stop telling myself those horrible stories I still fall back into those old habits but I'm also kind of proud of myself too because more recently and I think it's because of the people that I've surrounded myself with as well and I actually am now becoming my more authentic self out there in the world as you know I'm not masking as hard as I always used to do I'm trying to be my more authentic self um I did a, a presentation to a group and I hate shoes like I hate shoes and I'm always more comfortable if I can stand in front of a crowd and I've got a podium there and I can slip my shoes off where no one's watching. Anyway, there was no podium and I was struggling, right? I was really struggling to articulate and I went, you know what? This is a group of people with disability. If not here, then where? And I chucked my shoes off and went for it. And the the organiser of the event, she said, you was, I could tell you were struggling. And she said, as soon as those shoes came off, it was like the lights came on. Here's Claire in all her glory, wonderful, funny, happy, joyful self. So now I'm trying to do that on a more regular basis and be my authentic self um, and talk about, you know, and, and not be afraid, like bring my fidgets to the meeting, which is hilarious because every time I bring my fidgets, now I have to bring three or four because all the neurotypical people keep pinching them off me. So. <laughs> I love that so much. You're giving yes. so many other people permission to do the same and to be authentic to themselves and not mask and not have to constantly put on a facade because you'd know of me and Anya as well, like it can be so exhausting and the result is not only all that negative internal dialogue when you're trying to mask, but it can definitely manifest into physical symptoms as well, which 
I don't know if you've you've had a similar experience. Yeah, yeah. So I have some physical uh, disability as well, um, uh, some chronic pain and things like that, which is very common in autistic folk. But um, do you know the other thing that it actually, you're right, that masking is massively exhausting. It also makes me less productive. Right, because if I'm focusing on how I've got to behave and how I've got to act, I'm not focusing on the questions you're asking me or the work I've got to do. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not for one moment suggesting everything is rosy and I don't ever mask and I don't blah, 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 because I absolutely do. But there are spaces that I'm working in where I'm slowly becoming my more authentic self and, and it feels really nice. I also, though, need to acknowledge that I have a lot of privilege in being able to do that right because I am working for a start I am working in safe places for that for a large part now and I am working in a sector where um you know if if again if not us then where and so I have incredible privilege there so I kind of just need to say that you know it's I'm not sitting here with you guys and sprouting sunshine and roses and everything's wonderful because I step into the emergency management space and every single mask and skill I've ever learned has to come back on because these are not a group of people who are there yet. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, it is really challenging understanding how you can present to different audiences because I'm trying to, like you, Claire, be my more authentic self. And, you know, if I need a chair, if I need this, if I need that, if I need to take a bit of time, I'm trying to do that now because, like you said, you can't be productive if you're thinking about, oh, I'm in so much pain. I actually don't know how much longer I can stand up for and do this presentation. And other people can tell, like the organizer that could tell you're uncomfortable with your shoes on. But yeah, something I'm particularly interested in is, was there like some pivotal moment or something in the transition from you working in the disability sector to you more using your lived experience and doing more advocacy in the disability sector? It's a very gradual one. I mean, I've always, in all the roles that I've had, tried to do a little bit of advocacy in different ways. So that's, you know, that's been um, a gradual thing. I don't necessarily know, again, that I had the label for it as advocacy. But probably the pivotal moment was when I started on a project when WA was moving from our state-based funding system for people with disability and back and forth and back and forth, whether or not we were going to join the NDIS. And the project that I was on, what my my role was to, to deliver information sessions about the new, ses- the new um, funding method. Um, I worked with a, a great colleague and we were sort of almost like two halves of the same whole. She loved the data and, and the, you know, the detail. And I'm sort of a bit more of a big sky thinker and you know, looking at strategy and possibilities and the idea of data made me want to snore. You know, so we worked really well. And what happened was we developed this really good package uh, once the government had finally settled on which model we were going for. And we were meant to deliver 10 sessions on one lot of information and 10 sessions on the other. And I think we, by the time we finished a project, we'd done 130 or something like that. And what happened was, was we delivered the information in a way that made sense to the community. So they kept finding resources to get us to come back and do do other things. And that, I think, was really the start of our advocacy, more well, my personal advocacy journey, because what I did then was start to work really intensively, not just with the community, but with other organisations who were great at advo- as advocates. And I learned from some amazing human beings as we, you know, then we started to collaborate. So I had X amount of resources. They had X amount of resources. We're all trying to deliver the same message to different cohorts. So we started to work together to combine so that, you know, we could make the dollar go further. And then that got us in front of uh, the decision makers. So because we were now known as being connected throughout all of the community, they started coming to us and saying, what are you hearing? What are the issues? Uh, And that relationship then developed where we, uh, as a group, we sort of became a a trusted bunch of folk because we were the ones who were actually out there. They didn't have the resources. You know, the government had just decided we were going federal. They didn't even have staff. We're now supporting them to do what they need to do. Um, And that really taught me a lot. Um, And one of the things I think that has probably been the most effective tool was that 
understanding of the community, yes, but then also understanding the barriers that the that the government was up against or that the people working in that system trying to get this delivered but stuck with all of these, you know, processes and systems and things like that. So that was, I think that was a pivotal moment for me and it's just kind of really grown from there. That's amazing. And what sort of feeling do you get? Because all the work that you do and the projects you're on and the boards, it all sounds so fulfilling but in your words how how do you feel with the work that you're doing and the changes you're you're making yeah look it feels good I love what I do but there's a hefty dose of frustration sometimes the wheels don't always move as off as fast as I would love them to and sometimes it's really challenging to sort of stick your head up and have a big look at all of the things that you're doing and and see any impact that you're having or you might not be having or where the gaps are. So, you know, sometimes you do kind of get mired in that challenging space. But for the most part, uh, and maybe I'm a little bit Pollyanna, a little bit optimistic. Um, I feel like I'm an optimist at heart, but I feel like we're on the cusp of this change. Um, so I feel a little bit hopeful. But I've had to learn a lot of patience, a lot of patience. You know, I've got ADHD as well. I like things to move really, really quickly. And I think I think that's part of why I love being an emergency services volunteer so much as well, because when you go out and you, you know, you're doing what you're doing, there's the impact is in, instant, you know, like you, you're instantly helping the community, whereas advocacy, you have to have a really long view, really long view. I was working with a bunch of other advocates when we did uh, when we had the issue around the independent assessments come out and you know um I wasn't as comfortable you know being you know like I'm not a media type which Anya will laugh given that all the things that I've got on my profile but you know I'm not super comfortable on television I don't I'm I'm happy doing this I'm happy doing radio I can do written I don't like television at all but you know so I sat in the background and I made videos and I made memes and then when we I remember like sitting on my lounge whatever day of the week it was and I was watching the ABC news for some reason and up on the bottom of the screen it it flashed up that the NDIA had scrapped the independent assessments that the decision had just come through and I remember just sitting there bawling my eyes out like all of these advocates had given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours and had to be activists more than adv- advocates and, and and it happened you know and we over and it got overturned so um that was a pretty big pretty important moment for me so it's that sense of social justice i think you know why 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 hasn't everybody got access to things why haven't we you know why am i having these conversations about you know people who are human just as much as the top end of earners of town you know we're all human beings why is it okay that someone has something and others have nothing and have to mire through all these systems when you can you know just go like that and got it so there that that that's pretty strong in me yeah I relate so deeply to everything that you've said there is such a strong sense of you know fulfillment and joy and so many good things from the work that you do but there's ultimately a lot of sense of burnout or frustration when the wheels just move so slowly. And I recall last year I was facilitating a workshop and one of the other people there who was an advocate came up to me because they could just see that I was exhausted by not seeing any change for so long. And they had been doing it a lot longer than I have. And they just said to me, Anya, what you're pushing for and the changes that you want to make, they will probably happen eventually, but for your grandchildren. And I just said to them, no, 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 that that's not right. Like, it'll happen soon. It'll happen soon. They yeah. said, like, change is so slow. It will happen. Just think about it for your grandchildren. And once you change that mindset, you'll be a lot happier and more fulfilled. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I entirely agree with that, but it's an interesting way of looking at it because change is so painfully slow. And I think when you feel it so deeply and you can see the need for it, it's very hard to accept. Mm. I don't know if, I, if I've accepted it. No, I don't think I have either because my hackles went up when you said that. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, look, there's elements to that that they're right. It, it is slow and it will take change. When someone says to me it might be for your grandchildren, I think about all the lost lives in between now and then. Yeah. And, and that is, that's a, a driver, you know, why. Um, and, you know, we can't 
stop because if we stop then the change stops um, but that's a uh, really challenging sometimes to realize so I try not to think about that too much and just keep plugging away um, I had a really interesting experience in 2022 I ended up being part of the team that went to the United Nations and for the conference of state parties and met some flipping amazing people like that's another point in my life that changed actually I got on the plane and it was post the election, post the independent assessment stuff, you know, like the 10 years of erosion of the NDIS and, and support systems for our community. And I got on the plane going, oh, we are in such a bad state. We are in such a bad state here in this country. We are diabolical. <laughs> I think I remember saying to my husband at one point, if the if the other party who you know if the liberal party get in i think we need to leave the country and he's looking at me like i've grown another head and i'm like no i just feel so strongly that this is so bad and we are in such dire straits here and then i got off the plane and i went into this um well you know not literally off the plane and into the un building but the first day i arrived at the un and there was people from all over the world there and you know we're at I think we were like 20, 20 members, strong delegation, all supported by the government, all had all the things we needed to be there um, for the most part. And then there was people from places like uh, the Congo and Pakistan and, and the Ukraine, actually. Um, and it was four months into the Ukraine war and we went to an event where we could, uh, they were talking about the impact of that war on people with disability. And that changed my life in the way of, of how I advocated and and my understanding then of that you know that the the slow change and and it um, I'm probably losing my words a little bit it's because it was that impactful it's a little bit emotional for me but you know I got back on the plane going actually we've got a lot of work to do but we aren't so bad and you know I made friends with the guy from the Congo and you know he if he was here in Australia and an Australian citizen he would have been there with his you know with an electric wheelchair and you know but he was getting around on a pair of wooden crutches and he still was when I saw him the next year 12 months later and so I thought to myself you know we have got a lot we have a lot of work to do we have come a long way and that the point of the story and I will get there um is that it changed the way that I think about my advocacy work in relation to where we sit in the rest of the world it doesn't mean that I see it as less urgent but it means that I have a better understanding of if I don't get the thing that I'm advocating for it doesn't mean the sky is falling it means I have to go back rethink and start and maybe look for smaller things to move forward with rather than go from woe to to the biggest change so gave me a much better appreciation of incremental change and I also got to spend more time with some of the Australian government staff and and just learn from them you know about their pressures and about the things that they have to work against so yeah that was probably the second influential point. Yeah that sounds like such an interesting experience and well, such a perspective shifter mm. um, it's all on a spectrum really everyone's experiences of disability and that incremental change piece I think is so powerful. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I'm much I'm a much better collaborator now in the work that I do than I was previously. And I think that's because that little voice inside of me that says, yep, we need to do this, but we can take our foot off the pedal and have a really adult in-depth conversation about it. You know, of course there'll be times when we need to be activists again. Absolutely. Of course there will. There's lots happening right now that we need to really keep an eye on and, and you know, if the need arises. But, yeah, for the bulk of the work that I do, like let's say in changing the mindsets of people in emergency services, I can approach it much differently than I might have previously. Definitely. This, honestly, almost every question seems a little bit soft after hearing about your friend in the Congo not being able to have I know, I know. Yeah. But... <laughs> um, Yes, but this is actually something that I've experienced a bit and I was curious to hear about, you know, your experience and I think I've got an idea of your answer from the things that we've spoken about already, but given that your disability is invisible and you do so much work in the space, are there ever times that you're just brought in as a consultant, they don't really consider your lived experience and then you really hear people's true thoughts and feelings about the disability community without them fully realising that you're part of it? And then how does that impact you? 
Probably, uh, probably not so much brought in as a consultant and things like that, because I'm pretty open about the fact that I ha have a disability. So, you know, most people they know, but I have experienced something similar, you know, in uh, the brigade that I volunteer with, or, you know, when I've been out doing other things, you know, yeah. other volunteering roles that I've had. Yeah, absolutely. It has, um, you know, I've, I've heard people refer to people with intellectual disabilities in really awful ways. You know, I hear a lot of people uh, expressing stereotypes around autism, you know, wheelchair bound all the time. Um, yeah. So yes, I have experienced it. Does it feel, it feels awful. It feels absolutely awful. And then that moment you have to go, right, do I say something? Because they obviously don't live in the disability bubble kind of thing that I you know, or a lot of my friends have disability. It's what I do for a job. Um, they don't have that same exposure. Do I say something? Do I really have the energy to get into this really big, long conversation about ableism right now in the checkout at Coles? Um, <laughs> or, or do I, you know, um, for them, and most of the time I do say something, you know, and, and you hear it about the queer community that, um, as well, you know, and so I will always stand up where I can. You kind of get, it's like, really, do I have to be a teachable moment right now? Mm. <laughs> okay. Um. So, yeah, it, it, it doesn't feel, it feels awful. It feels very, very awful. But then it also sort of lights a little bit of a fire in me as well to keep, you know, plugging away in the brigade that I'm in, you know, it's, again, exhausting, but then I say something and, and it's like an opportunity for change. Well, you know, hey, actually we can because here I am standing here in the same uniform as you doing the same role that you do. So, um, yeah, depending where it is, it can be an opportunity, but, you know, sometimes it's it's also I just want to get the bread and milk and go home. Yeah, <laughs> totally understandable. And I guess saying something, yeah. even if, you don't feel up to you know going on a whole spiel it's better than nothing so yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it, what we can do and and that's that's it yeah. it's very tiring it can be yeah but I mean I suppose um in answer to your question and you're about the tokenism I have had a couple of experiences where I've been approached to be on a board people knew I had a disability but um, I was approached to tick that box for them. So it's not quite the same thing, but, you know, I've sort of had to sit down and like, well, well, why, 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 why have you approached me? And they said, oh, well, we need a person with disability. Yep. So that's one facet, but you're asking me to join your board, which is the governing body of your organization. So surely you want to put a little bit of thought into this oh no 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 no. so our building's not accessible but we want someone with a disability so we thought you could get up the stairs so my <laughs> I was real cranky this day so I said so my actual selection criteria for being approached is that I can get up the stairs and I have a disability not whether or not I can contribute to the running of your organization oh no no we've got that covered we just need to be more diverse and I don't think I'm the person for you see you bye <laughs> Uh, I have actually had the same experience. I was recruited and got brought in for a board interview that was quite inappropriate. It wasn't to do with my background at all. And I got in there and I said, you know, do you want to ask me any questions? And all the questions were very fluffy. You know, it was just that I was a young woman. I had a disability. That was it. I just ticked those boxes. And they said, do you have any questions for us and I said yeah why on earth do you want me on the board and of course they were dancing around the disability they said oh you know just your diversity you'll think so differently from us and blah 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 and I just thought this is the most ridiculous thing and of course you know a three-year appointment like no fees because we're not-for-profit and massive uh, risk to yep yep <laughs> I just, yeah exactly exactly so yeah it's the tokenism is rife <laughs> yeah hugely I mean, great that they wanted, they had the idea of diversity and that in mind. But I think if you're, you know, if you want that, then you need to really have a look at your motives and your, what you're asking that person to take on and, and your preparedness to listen to that diversity of voices too. Because if I'm just there to tick a box, then you're not really going to take my voice too seriously, are you? So perhaps you're not ready, for, not as ready for diversity as you thought you might have been. <laughs> Absolutely. And how can you support someone with a disability on the board? And are you really prepared to like ask someone with a disability to sit on your board for three years without any payment. 
okay. yeah, give up their time, uh, you know, give their give you their expertise, which is the same as everybody else's. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's funny. Yeah, it's challenging sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> the more we change, <laughs> sometimes I think, oh, we're still going backwards, but no. Nah shouldn't say that for the most part I think we are making positive change I mean that might have for me I sort of I, I tried not to get really arced up about it because I thought well this is a board that or an organization that you know 10 years ago wouldn't have even known what diversity was baby steps <laughs> that awkward time now where people are getting there but it's it's not enough still so yeah like yeah. conversation before about yeah. patience and needing to just everything so slow oh it's, yeah, yeah. Really- yeah, I think um that was probably an opportunity that I missed actually to educate, but I was just so angry. I mean, th- this was not the first board that I would have been on and, you know, it's it's on, you know, my LinkedIn and it's public, the boards that I'd been on. So clearly I had board experience, but when I asked them why, and that was what I was thinking, that they would say, well, you know, you've got experience working on a national board and blah, blah, blah. But it was like, no, it's because you can get up the stairs and you've got a disability. So I was like, oh, yeah. But uh, so I, I I do think I missed an opportunity there to educate and support. But at the time I was just so angry. Totally fair. Totally fair. Um <laughs> Now, in your TEDx talk, I think that was 2022. I think so, yeah. Memory. Um, I have watched it. I I have. I I think we all feel like that about our own work. (laughs) It was amazing. Um, And I wanted to ask you now, you spoke about an experience where you were working on a project to develop businesses with people with disability. Um, but yeah. those funding the project ultimately believed that it wouldn't be as successful as they were thought of as too disabled. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, can you just share with us, like, why is there this perception that people who are too disabled can't succeed in business, like, from your point of view and your experiences? Yeah, God, that made it still makes me wild, that comment. I think about it every now and then and I think, oh, yeah. So I think there's a few parts to why people still think that way. I think, you know, again, for as much work as we're all doing and the change that is happening, uh, there's a very big perception still by the community that people with disability are, and I hate the word vulnerable, but we are apparently inherently vulnerable and we need looking after. Right. And that comes from decades and decades of things like the charity model, like, you know, where charities would look after those poor disabled people and things like that. And and we're not included in schools. So, you know, we're kind of, um, you know, people, especially people with significant disability are not in mainstream schools for the most part. So there's not that exposure to the capability and the capacity that we have. And you couple that with sort of traditional thinking around the running of businesses and the run the way that you know the things that people have to do and and to 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 run a successful business i think that informs people's attitudes a lot and then the last part is i think it's just visibility there's not massive amounts of visibility of people with disability running their own business and going back to my earlier point around we don't know what we don't know in the past, we've had people with disability running their own business, but they weren't necessarily set up to be businesses in their own right. They might have been set up to be something that that person could do to fill in their time. Uh, so, you know, you might um, they might be making a product that if they didn't have a disability, nobody would purchase because it's not really up to standard. So people would purchase out of like pity or feeling sorry for that person. And I think that's that's contributed to that as well. Um, what I was really proud of, of of the people that I worked with in the project that we were on was we were like, no, no, we're going to do this differently. And we're going to make sure that if a business is out there and they're ready to sell and their their product, et cetera, et cetera, it's, it's going to be as professional as we can make it or we, you know, because the, unfortunately people you know if you set a business up around people feeling sorry for you so they purchase they'll only do that once so you know and then your business won't survive so um so I think those are the factors I think also you know if I want to look big sky and big picture I think there's a le- lack of representation in the corporate sector of people with disability in decision making or CEO roles or things like that so 
you know, we're not seeing it yet. I think, it, you know, people need to see it in action before their, their minds can change. They might have the value that, yes, people should be valued and be able to do it or, or could do it, but often it's to, it's the visibility and we don't, if we don't see it in action, it's it's really hard to imagine it and see it. But um, those businesses that I talked about in the TED Talk are still going strong. That's incredible. And uh, like really as it should be, you make some yeah. great points. Do you yeah. think that entrepreneurship can be one of the keys to economic freedom and independence for people with oh, disabilities? Absolutely. Absolutely. For so many reasons. Of course, there's the things that we we all think about, like, uh, you know, we can run our businesses in the way that suits us. So we can, you know, build build the business ways of working around our own needs. You know, like if, if my business is providing offsite admin services, I can do that in the middle of the night if I'm a night owl or, you know, you can build your business around your fluctuating needs or about, you know, about how you how you want to do it if you if you if you're an artist and you're not real comfortable going to markets and things like that you can run your business online so um all of those things that you typically think about but what i also think is um why I, and I, and possibly why i'm so passionate about it it's not really going to bring you any money but um <laughs> you know when you meet someone for the first time they sort of say you know what do you do and when you can say i run my own business there's that instant well you must be pretty capable yeah. So that people running their own business, you know, that contributes to that uh, societal idea that that we are capable. And then I also really love it, particularly with uh, younger folk or, or anyone who, who actually wants to work in open employment, but is struggling to get their foot in the door. If you can run your own, you know, running your own business requires a lot of employability skills, just like having a job does. Um, but you've got the sort of freedom to develop it at your own rate. And, uh, you know, putting that on your resume is really powerful. I run my own business. So it might not be forever that you run your own business, but you'll develop those skills, which make you employable, which then leads to economic freedom. And that's for a lot of, it's not just for people with disability. There's a lot of, you know, uh, women all over the world, you know, who are traditionally, uh, low-income earners or at risk in a lot of different ways entrepreneurship is a key to freedom for them as well um, so yeah I think it's a massively powerful tool and I really wish we could do more in this country to support it for people with disability because it's it's an incredibly important it's also a really good tool for connection and inclusion amongst communities you know I've seen that so many times People who go to the same market and have their stall at the same market time and time and time again become part of that market family. You know, it's much better than going bowling every Tuesday for 10 years. <laughs> so don't start me on that rent. <laughs> Absolutely. Running, running your own business or doing your own thing is just so, so rewarding. And I know um, I could relate to so much of what you said because I had such a, a, a big gap in my resume and oh, I think it was the end of um, 2021 I think I started a, a gift box business online and I had you know a charity aspect to it supporting Lyme Disease Australia um, but also I just wanted to make it as professional as possible with the resources I had but it's incredibly difficult when you're not well, you're going through your symptoms, but you have these big dreams and these big goals. Um, doing it on your own is is incredibly difficult. So any support that, um, you know, anyone with disability can get is just amazing. Yeah, it's a conversation I had about six months ago. People, Somebody said to me, oh, but it, it's so many resources and support get poured into supporting someone with disability, like particularly significant disability to run their business. And I said, but how is that any different to any other business? If you're a, an entrepreneur without a disability and you start up your own small business, you're normally reaching out to family for help or friends to help or, you know, um, your local community that you might be connected to. That's how you start your business. You reach out for support. And so that's not really any different to, to us. And I think that's particularly an important attitude when people have a significant disability. You know, they can absolutely contribute. And as businesses grow and develop, et cetera, no, not, not usually not one person does everything anyway. You know, they have support to do things. I mean, I think Jeff Bezos even started out in his mum and dad's garage right? Hello. So, you know, it's, it's not that I really love Amazon as a business model, but, you know, <laughs> um, but 
yeah, it's it's this misconception that just because we have that level of support that needs that we that we're not capable, but you know, absolutely inherently capable. Agreed, a thousand percent. Now, um, you talk a lot about young disabled kids who don't get to be a part of the big dream conversations that enable them to succeed later on in their life. What are those big dream conversations and how do we have them and whose responsibility do you think it is to encourage those? Um, I'll start with the last part first. Whose responsibility? Everybody's. Right? It's everybody's responsibility. One of the things I didn't talk about in my career journey was I spent some time as an education assistant in, in an ed support school. And um, that really informed that statement around kids not having big dream conversations. And, and also for my own family. So we had one of my children diagnosed around seven um, and the others, uh, you know, older. And for that one child, nobody ever sort of said, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you want to do? And that's a very, very common experience. A few years ago, I was working, there's a program here in WA where kids go through, it's called Keys for Life, it's driver, driver education. And they can go through that training. And at the end of that training, they get their learner's permit. Thank God we didn't have to teach anyone to drive. Oh, I don't want to have to do that again. Hurry up with the driverless vehicles. Um, <laughs> so, but all the kids in the mainstream school, when they hit year 10, it was a given. They went through this program. None of the kids in the education support school, whether they were capable of driving or not, got given that opportunity, right? That's what I'm talking about with your big dream conversations. And I've seen it with family after family after family. The diagnosis stuff comes up and all of a sudden life is about therapy and supports and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's really important. Absolutely it is. But fundamentally they're human beings and they still have those dreams the same as everybody else does they still see you know people on tv doing jobs that they might want to do or read about it or however they come you know watch it on tiktok or whatever they're seeing people do the things that they want to do um but then nobody is sort of having that same conversation with a little person or a young person leaving school as they're having with the kids without disability I'd like to think it's changing, but, and in some parts I've seen it changing, but in, in others it hasn't. And then, you know, in some ways you, you see the conversation happening and then the conversation is happening while the kids are being funneled into supported employment, which is a whole nother conversation. But I feel like the chance to dream big and to dream about your future, I kind of place it up there as just as important as human rights you know because if we don't have anything to aspire to you know that puts us in a very bad place you know so I think it's really really important yeah definitely just out of curiosity do you think that the people with disability that you see succeed the most like they might be you know an adulthood now do you think that they've actually had the big dream conversations with parents, educators, whoever else, when they're younger? Or do you think that they've picked this up themselves as they've grown older? Oh, look, I think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. So I think it's, you know, you you do have some amazing families that have come I've come across and who've gone, yeah, no, nah, we want more than that for our for our loved one. And then you've seen some some people who've got an incredible amount of drive, um, who've gone actually and stuck the finger up to the system and go, no, I want this and I want it so badly that I'll keep fighting for it. So I think, unfortunately, it does also sometimes come down to the support that people have around them. If they've got access to things like the NDIS, if they've got access to support systems that can, you know, if they've if there's people in their community who are open to being inclusive, like there's a cafe here in not far from me who is an incredibly inclusive place. I love going there. And, you know, you see they make space for people with disability and people who are homeless and people who are from the LGBTQIA plus community all the time. You know, if you've got those, then you've got a better chance. But if you're living very isolated, fully supported lives with with people who don't necessarily believe that, then you're really up against it. I think we've got a long way to go with school and education to embed that mindset into schools and education. I hope it comes about I think there's a really great push at the moment for more inclusive education so and the other thing you know again exposure it isn't just necessarily about what the kids with disability or the young people with disability are exposed to it's what the kids without are exposed to as well so if they're not 
you know, in a classroom where someone using a wheelchair is the norm or they're, they're not, you know, exposed to autistic folk in their day-to-day school life, they're not going to think about them when they become employers, right? Because they're not going to see the, the capacity uh, and the, you know, things that these people can achieve because they're separate. So then they don't, they're not front of mind as an employer or as a recruiter. So yeah, I think it's actually exposure to all people from all works of life will contribute to that as well. Absolutely. And something that I've heard you speak about before is that, you know, fear is such a huge factor and you'd expect, I or I would expect that it would be fear for someone with a disability who hasn't had a job before going into a workplace at such a different environment. But actually it seems like it's fear from the employer side for having someone with a disability in the workplace. Do you think that that's basically just exposure and societal attitudes or what would you put that down to? I do. I think that's part of that. We live in a sort of a risk averse society where we worry about insurances and you know, risk management and all that sort of stuff. So there's there's myths out there that, you know, it costs more to insure us or, it you know, we're going to come in and need you to redesign your whole office and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's also the fear around language. People are afraid of saying something that will offend and then, you know, it's happened. People people say something and not, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. So I kind of operate on this, you get one opportunity. If you say something that's not okay and I, and I speak to you about it and then it never happens again, okay, let's move on. If you continue, then we've got a problem. So, but whereas other people in the, um, and it, regardless of community, you know, if someone says wrong, they're, they're in there with the finger and they're screaming down their throat and people just are afraid to disengage. So uh, afraid to engage, sorry. And so I think people are afraid of that. I don't know what language to use. I don't know what accessibility looks like. I don't know um, how I can support these people. I don't know how to have conversations if their pro- productivity is not where it is or where I need it to be. I don't know. I don't know. And so people just don't because they're afraid. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely society's expectations. It is exactly that not being involved um, and not seeing us an exposure. And But it is also the myths and the fear around that. So why I sort of made my earlier point around it isn't all on us as a community. We need to support the employers and the decision makers and you know from the top down as well. I'll give you a really like... If you think about Parliament, right, so we've got Jordan Steele, John. I very much believe if we did not have Jordan in the Parliament, then the conversation around the NDIS and around the independent assessments and all those things, I don't think we would have got as far as we did, right? So that's a really powerful example of representation matters. Amazing. Yeah, there's still a long way to go, but... um. Yeah. <laughs> but it all counts it all counts we'll finish up with a final question that we like to ask all of our guests um what advice would you give to your younger self with all that you know now about life business just all of it well the first thing I would do would say stop and be kinder to yourself stop telling yourselves these things that you're telling yourself because you're limiting yourself right the second thing I would have told myself is it's okay if your trajectory doesn't look like everybody else's right because you'll get where you want to be even if you don't know where that is yet right I've ended up here by accident but I love it (laughs) it wasn't by design by design I would have been working oh god some horrible corporate newspaper probably by some net by now but and then the the other probably would be to say yes more often right don't be afraid to say yes so very early on I was you know people would ask me to do things and I would go oh no 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 I can't do that because I didn't believe in myself that I could and so I missed out on opportunities and I think over the last you know five or so years as I've learned to say yes more often then that's where those opportunities and those incredible experiences have come from because I've been more opening to say yes. And maybe I'm going to put in a cheeky fourth because I don't follow scripts, um, is uh, if you don't ask, the answer's already no, right? So we always go through this, you know, I'm, I'm not going to ask for what I need, but then I'm in exactly the same place as I had of had had asked. So I think, you know, if the answer's no, then the answer's no, but at least you know that you tried. And we get so afraid of wanting to talk to the people that we look up to. Um, but hey, guess what? 
they've got just as much imposter syndrome as we have and there's someone that they're looking up to that they're too afraid to talk to you know so yeah if you don't ask you're already at no they're really perfect insights thank you so much (laughs) I'm going to write them all down on a whiteboard or something because I think they're just perfect short sweet mantras I think they're things that I need to remind myself of all the time yeah Um, and it's a perfect way to wrap up the interview so thank you so 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 much Claire I have learned so much from you I do every time I hear you um I know that everyone listening would be incredibly grateful for your insights as well no I'm happy to chat to anyone at any time it's getting me to stop that's the issue so um and I I genuinely on you I mean I'm going red as you say in that but I don't think I'm any better than anybody else I just have been incredibly lucky and incredibly privileged and I really believe that one of my other mantras is if you you are if you get given a seat at the table you open up and ask for a spare because the more of us that do this work the, the stronger our voices are so you know I don't think I'm Um, any better than anybody else I've just been in some right places at the right time and I'm always open to being curious and learning from others so yeah reach out have a chat to me (laughs) just make time to do so (laughs) oh you're going to regret saying that you're going to be bombarded (laughs) but I think having that attitude of you know you get a seat at the table you create a seat for someone else is just so beautiful and it's so rare um but yeah one day I want to retire and go live on a farm with some alpacas so I need somebody else to be able to carry on (laughs) (laughs) you're building an army of us (laughs) well that is it from us for today so thank you so much everyone for listening um and we will talk to you all next week thank you guys thanks Thanks for having me thanks for having me